Chapter Five, Part Four of Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Fox's Book of Martyrs, Volume One by John Fox, edited by William Byron Forbush. Chapter Five: An Account of the Inquisition, Part Four. An account of the life and sufferings of Mr. William Lithgow, a native of Scotland. This gentleman was descended from a good family, and having a natural propensity for traveling, he rambled, when very young, over the northern and western islands, after which he visited France, Germany, Switzerland, and Spain. He set out on his travels in the month of March, 1609, and the first place he went to was Paris, where he stayed for some time. He then prosecuted his travels through Germany and other parts, and at length arrived at Malaga, in Spain, the seat of all his misfortunes. During his residence here, he contracted with the master of a French ship for his passage to Alexandria, but was prevented from going by the following circumstances. In the evening of the 17th of October, 1620, the English fleet, at that time on a cruise against the Algerine rovers, came to anchor before Malaga, which threw the people of the town into the greatest consternation, as they imagined them to be Turks. The morning, however, discovered the mistake, and the governor of Malaga, perceiving the cross of England in their colors, went on board Sir Robert Mansell's ship, who commanded on that expedition, and after staying some time returned and silenced the fears of the people. The next day many persons from on board the fleet came ashore, among these were several well known by Mr. Lithgow, who, after reciprocal compliments, spent some days together in festivity and the amusements of the town. They then invited Mr. Lithgow to go on board and pay his respects to the admiral. He accordingly accepted the invitation, was kindly received by him, and detained till the next day when the fleet sailed. The admiral would willingly have taken Mr. Lithgow with him to Algiers, but having contracted for his passage to Alexandria, and his baggage, etc., being in the town, he could not accept the offer. As soon as Mr. Lithgow got on shore, he proceeded towards his lodgings by a private way, being to embark the same night for Alexandria, when, in passing through a narrow uninhabited street, he found himself suddenly surrounded by nine sergeants, or officers, who threw a black cloak over him, and forcibly conducted him to the governor's house. After some little time the governor appeared when Mr. Lithgow earnestly begged he might be informed of the cause of such violent treatment. The governor only answered by shaking his head, and gave orders that the prisoner should be strictly watched until he, the governor, returned from his devotions, directing at the same time that the captain of the town, the alcade major, and the town notary, should be summoned to appear at his examination, and that all this should be done with the greatest secrecy, to prevent the knowledge reaching the ears of the English merchants then residing in the town. These orders were strictly discharged, and on the governor's return, he, with the officers, having seated themselves, Mr. Lithgow was brought before them for examination. The governor began by asking several questions, namely, of what country he was, whither bound, and how long he had been in Spain. The prisoner, after answering these and other questions, was conducted to a closet, where, in a short space of time, he was visited by the town captain, who inquired whether he had ever been at Seville, or was lately come from thence, and patting his cheeks with an air of friendship, conjured him to tell the truth, quote, 
for said he your very countenance shows there is some hidden matter in your mind which prudence should direct you to disclose finding himself however unable to extort anything from the prisoner he left him and reported the same to the governor and the other officers on which mr lithgow was again brought before them a general accusation was laid against him and he was compelled to swear that he would give true answers to such questions as should be asked him the governor proceeded to inquire the quality of the english commander and the prisoner's opinion what were the motives that prevented his accepting an invitation from him to come on shore he demanded likewise the names of the english captains in the squadron and what knowledge he had of the embarkation or preparation for it before his departure from england the answers given to the several questions asked were set down in writing by the notary but the junto seemed surprised at his denying any knowledge of the fitting out of the fleet particularly the governor who said he lied that he was a traitor and a spy and came directly from england to favor and assist the designs that were projected against spain and that he had been for that purpose nine months in seville in order to procure intelligence of the time the spanish navy was expected from the indies they exclaimed against his familiarity with the officers of the fleet and many other english gentlemen between whom they said unusual civilities had passed but all these transactions had been carefully noticed besides to sum up the whole and put the truth past all doubt they said he came from a council of war held that morning on board the admiral's ship in order to put in execution the orders assigned him they upbraided him with being accessory to the burning of the island of st thomas in the west indies Quote, wherefore said they these lutherans and sons of the devil ought to have no credit given to what they say or swear in vain did mr lithgow endeavor to obviate every accusation laid against him and to obtain belief from his prejudiced judges he begged permission to send for his cloak bag which contained his papers and might serve to show his innocence this request they complied with thinking it would discover some things of which they were ignorant the cloak-bag was accordingly brought, and being opened, among other things was found a license from King James I, under the sign manual, setting forth the bearer's intention to travel into Egypt, which was treated by the haughty Spaniards with great contempt. The other papers consisted of passports, testimonials, etc., of persons of quality. All these credentials, however, seemed rather to confirm than abate the suspicions of these prejudiced judges, who after seizing all the prisoner's papers ordered him again to withdraw in the meantime a consultation was held to fix the place where the prisoner should be confined the alcade or chief judge was for putting him into the town prison but this was objected to particularly by the corregidor who said in spanish quote, in order to prevent the knowledge of his confinement from reaching his countrymen i will take the matter on myself and be answerable for the consequences end quote upon which it was agreed that he should be confined in the governor's house with the greatest secrecy. This matter being determined, one of the sergeants went to Mr. Lithgow and begged his money with liberty to search him. As it was needless to make any resistance, the prisoner quietly complied, when the sergeant, after rifling his pockets of eleven ducatoons, stripped him to his shirt, and searching his breeches he found, enclosed in the waistband, two canvas bags, containing one hundred and thirty-seven pieces of gold the sergeant immediately took the money to the corregidor who after having told it over ordered him to clothe the prisoner and shut him up close until after supper 
About midnight the sergeant and two Turkish slaves released Mr. Lithgow from his then confinement, but it was to introduce him to one much more horrible. They conducted him through several passages, to a chamber in a remote part of the palace, towards the garden, where they loaded him with irons and extended his legs by means of an iron bar above a yard long, the weight of which was so great that he could neither stand nor sit, but was obliged to lie continually on his back. They left him in this condition for some time, when they returned with a refreshment of food, consisting of a pound of boiled mutton and a loaf, together with a small quantity of wine, which was not only the first, but the best and last of the kind, during his confinement in this place. After delivering these articles, the sergeant locked the door and left Mr. Lithgow to his own private contemplations. The next day he received a visit from the governor, who promised him his liberty, with many other advantages, if he would confess being a spy. But on his protesting that he was entirely innocent, the governor left him in a rage, saying, quote, He should see him no more until further torments constrained him to confess, unquote, commanding the keeper, to whose care he was committed, that he should permit no person whatever to have access to or commune with him, that his sustenance should not exceed three ounces of musty bread and a pint of water every second day, that he shall be allowed neither bed, pillow, nor coverlid. Quote, Close up, said he, this window in his room with lime and stone, stop up the holes of the door with double mats, let him have nothing that bears any likeness to comfort. End quote. These and several orders of the like severity were given to render it impossible for his condition to be known to those of the English nation. In this wretched and melancholy state did poor Lithgow continue without seeing any person for several days, in which time the governor received an answer to a letter he had written, relative to the prisoner, from Madrid, and, pursuant to the instructions given him, began to put in practice the cruelties devised, which were hastened because Christmas holydays approached, it being then the forty-seventh day since his imprisonment. About two o'clock in the morning he heard the noise of a coach in the street, and some time after heard the opening of the prison doors, not having had any sleep for two nights, hunger, pain, and melancholy reflections having prevented him from taking any repose. Soon after the prison doors were opened, the nine sergeants, who had first seized him, entered the place where he lay, and without uttering a word, conducted him in his irons through the house into the street, where a coach waited, and into which they laid him at the bottom on his back, not being able to sit. Two of the sergeants rode with him, and the rest walked by the coach side, but all observed the most profound silence. They drove him to a vine-press house, about a league from the town, to which place a rack had been privately conveyed before, and there they shut him up for that night. At daybreak the next morning arrived the governor and the alcade, into whose presence Mr. Lithgow was immediately brought to undergo another examination. The prisoner desired he might have an interpreter, which was allowed to strangers by the laws of that country, but this was refused, nor would they permit him to appeal to Madrid, the superior court of judicature. After a long examination, which lasted from morning until night, there appeared in all his answers so exact a conformity with what he had before said, that they declared he had learned them by heart, there not being the least prevarication. They, however, pressed him again to make a full discovery, that is, to accuse himself of crimes never committed, the governor adding, quote, You are still in my power, I can set you free if you comply, 
If not, I must deliver you to the alcade. Mr. Lithgow still persisting in his innocence, the governor ordered the notary to draw up a warrant for delivering him to the alcade to be tortured. In consequence of this, he was conducted by the sergeants to the end of a stone gallery, where the rack was placed. The encaruador, or executioner, immediately struck off his irons, which put him to very great pains, the bolts being so closely riveted that the sledgehammer tore away half an inch of his heel in forcing off the bolt. The anguish of which, together with his weak condition, not having the least sustenance for three days, occasioned him to groan bitterly, upon which the merciless Elcade said, quote, Villain, traitor, this is but the earnest of what you shall endure. End quote. When his irons were off, he fell on his knees, uttering a short prayer, that God would be pleased to enable him to be steadfast and undergo courageously the grievous trial he had to encounter. The alcade and notary having placed themselves in chairs, he was stripped naked and fixed upon the rack, the office of these gentlemen being to be witness of, and set down the confessions and tortures endured by the delinquent. It is impossible to describe all the various tortures inflicted upon him. Suffice it to say, that he lay on the rack for above five hours, during which time he received above sixty different tortures of the most hellish nature, and had they continued them a few minutes longer, he must have inevitably perished. These cruel persecutors being satisfied for the present, the prisoner was taken from the rack, and his irons being again put on, he was conducted to his former dungeon, having received no other nourishment than a little warm wine, which was given him rather to prevent his dying, and reserve him for future punishments, than from any principle of charity or compassion. As a confirmation of this, orders were given for a coach to pass every morning before day by the prison, that the noise made by it might give fresh terrors and alarms to the unhappy prisoner, and deprive him of all possibility of obtaining the least repose. He continued in this horrid situation, almost starved for want of the common necessaries to preserve his wretched existence, until Christmas Day, when he received some relief from Marianne, waiting-woman to the governor's lady. This woman, having obtained leave to visit him, carried with her some refreshments, consisting of honey, sugar, raisins, and other articles, and so affected was she at beholding his situation, that she wept bitterly, and at her departure expressed the greatest concern at not being able to give him further assistance. In this loathsome prison was poor Mr. Lithgow kept until he was almost devoured by vermin. They crawled about his beard, lips, eyebrows, etc., so that he could scarce open his eyes, and his mortification was increased by not having the use of his hands or legs to defend himself from his being so miserably maimed by the tortures. So cruel was the governor that he even ordered the vermin to be swept on him twice in every eight days. He, however, obtained some little mitigation of this part of his punishment from the humanity of a Turkish slave that attended him, who, when he could do it with safety, destroyed the vermin and contributed every refreshment to him that laid in his power. From this slave, Mr. Lithgow at length received information which gave him little hopes of ever being released, but, on the contrary, that he should finish his life under new tortures. The substance of this information was that an English seminary priest, and a Scotch cooper, had been for some time employed by the governor to translate from the English into the Spanish language all his books and observations, and that it was commonly said in the governor's house that he was an arch-heretic. This information greatly alarmed him, and he began, not without reason, 
to fear that they would soon finish him, more especially as they could neither by torture or by other means bring him to vary from what he had all along said at his different examinations. Two days after he had received the above information, the governor, and inquisitor, and a canonical priest, accompanied by two Jesuits, entered his dungeon, and being seated, after several idle questions, the inquisitor asked Mr. Lithgow if he was a Roman Catholic, and acknowledged the Pope's supremacy. He answered that he neither was the one nor did the other, adding that he was surprised at being asked such questions, since it was expressly stipulated by the Articles of Peace between England and Spain that none of the English subjects should be liable to the Inquisition, or any way molested by them on account of diversity in religion, etc. In the bitterness of his soul he made use of some warm expressions not suited to his circumstances. Quote, as you have almost murdered me, said he, for pretended treason, so now you intend to make a martyr of me for my religion. He also expostulated with the governor on the ill return he made to the king of England, whose subject he was, for the princely humanity exercised toward the Spaniards in 1588, when their armada was shipwrecked on the Scotch coast, and thousands of the Spaniards found relief, who might otherwise have miserably perished. The governor admitted the truth of what Mr. Lithgow said, but replied with a haughty air that the king, who then only ruled Scotland, was actuated more by fear than love, and therefore did not deserve any thanks. One of the Jesuits said there was no faith to be kept with heretics. The inquisitor then rising, addressed himself to Mr. Lithgow in the following words, quote, You have been taken up as a spy, accused of treachery and tortured, as we acknowledge, innocently which appears by the account lately received from Madrid of the intentions of the English. Yet it was the divine power that brought these judgments upon you, for presumptuously treating the blessed miracle of Loretto with ridicule, and expressing yourself in your writings irreverently of his holiness, the great agent and Christ's vicar upon earth. Therefore you are justly fallen into our hands by their special appointment. Thy books and papers are miraculously translated by the assistance of Providence influencing thy own countrymen. This trumpery being ended, they gave the prisoner eight days to consider and resolve whether he would become a convert to their religion, during which time the inquisitor told him he, with other religious orders, would attend to give him such assistance thereto as he might want. One of the Jesuits said, first making the sign of the cross upon his breast, quote, my son, behold, you deserve to be burnt alive, but by the grace of Our Lady of Loretto, whom you have blasphemed, we will both save your soul and body. In the morning the inquisitor, with three other ecclesiastics, returned, when the former asked the prisoner what difficulties he had on his conscience that retarded his conversion, to which he answered, quote, He had not any doubts in his mind, being confident in the promises of Christ, and assuredly believing his revealed will signified in the Gospels, as professed in the Reformed Catholic Church, being confirmed by grace, and having infallible insurance thereby of the Christian faith. To these words the Inquisitor replied, quote, Thou art no Christian, but an absurd heretic, and without conversion a member of perdition. End quote. The prisoner then told him that it was not consistent with the nature and essence of religion and charity to convince by opprobrious speeches, racks, and torments, but by arguments deduced from the scriptures, and that all other methods would with him be totally ineffectual. The inquisitor was so enraged at the replies made by the prisoner, 
that he struck him on the face, used many abusive speeches, and attempted to stab him, which he had certainly done had he not been prevented by the Jesuits, and from this time he never again visited the prisoner. The next day the two Jesuits returned, and putting on a very grave, superlicious air, the superior asked him what resolution he had taken, to which Mr. Lithgow replied that he was already resolved, unless he could show substantial reasons to make him alter his opinion. The superior, after a pedantic display of their seven sacraments, the intercession of saints, transubstantiation, etc., boasted greatly of their church, her antiquity, universality, and uniformity, all of which Mr. Lithgow denied. Quote, For, said he, the profession of the faith I hold hath been ever since the first days of the apostles, and Christ had ever his own church, however obscure, in the greatest time of your darkness. End quote. The Jesuits, finding their arguments had not the desired effect, that torments could not shake his constancy, nor even the fear of the cruel sentence he had reason to expect would be pronounced and executed on him, after severe menaces, left him. On the eighth day after, being the last of their inquisition, when sentence is pronounced, they returned again, but quite altered both in their words and behavior, after repeating much of the same kind of arguments as before, they, with seeming tears in their eyes, pretended they were sorry from their heart he must be obliged to undergo a terrible death, but above all for the loss of his most precious soul, and falling on their knees, cried out, Convert, convert, O oh dear brother, for our blessed lady's sake, convert. To which he answered, I fear neither death nor fire being prepared for both. The first effects Mr. Lithgow felt of the determination of this bloody tribunal was, a sentence to receive that night eleven different tortures, and if he did not die in the execution of them, which might be reasonably expected from the maimed and disjointed condition he was in, he was, after Easter holy days, to be carried to Granada, and there burnt to ashes. The first part of the sentence was executed with great barbarity that night, and it pleased God to give him strength both of body and mind to stand fast to the truth, and to survive the horrid punishments inflicted on him. After these barbarians had glutted themselves for the present, with exercising on the unhappy prisoner the most distinguished cruelties, they again put irons on and conveyed him to his former dungeon. The next morning he received some little comfort from the Turkish slave before mentioned, who secretly brought him, in his shirt-sleeve, some raisins and figs, which he licked up in the best manner his strength would permit with his tongue. It was to this slave Mr. Lithgow attributed his surviving so long in such a wretched situation, for he found means to convey some of these fruits to him twice every week. It was very extraordinary and worthy of note that this poor slave, bred up from his infancy according to the maxims of his prophet and parents, in the greatest detestation of Christians, should be so affected at the miserable situation of Mr. Lithgow that he fell ill, and continued so for upwards of forty days. During this period Mr. Lithgow was attended by a negro woman, a slave, who found means to furnish him with refreshments still more amply than the Turk, being conversant in the house and family. She brought him every day some victuals, and with it some wine in a bottle. The time was now so far elapsed, and the horrid situation so truly loathsome, that Mr. Lithgow waited with anxious expectation for the day which, by putting an end to his life, would also end his torments but his melancholy expectations were, by the interposition of providence, 
happily rendered abortive, and his deliverance obtained from the following circumstances. It happened that a Spanish gentleman of quality came from Granada to Malaga, who being invited to an entertainment by the governor, informed him of what had befallen Mr. Lithgow from the time of his being apprehended as a spy, and described the various sufferings he had endured. He likewise told him that after it was known the prisoner was innocent, it gave him great concern, that on this account he would gladly have released him, restored his money and papers, and made some atonement for the injuries he had received, but that, upon an inspection into his writings, several were found of a very blasphemous nature, highly reflecting on their religion, that on his refusing to abjure these heretical opinions, he was turned over to the Inquisition, by whom he was finally condemned. While the governor was relating this tragical tale, a Flemish youth, servant to the Spanish gentleman, who waited at the table, was struck with amazement and pity at the sufferings of the stranger described. On his return to his master's lodgings, he began to revolve in his mind what he had heard, which made such an impression on him that he could not rest in his bed. In the short slumbers he had, his imagination pointed to him the person described on the rack and burning in the fire. In this anxiety he passed the night, and when the morning came, without disclosing his intentions to any person whatever, he went into the town and inquired for an English factor. He was directed to the house of a Mr. Wilde, to whom he related the whole of what he had heard pass the preceding evening between his master and the governor, but could not tell Mr. Lithgow's name. Mr. Wilde, however, conjectured it was he, by the servants remembering the circumstance of his being a traveller, and as having had some acquaintance with him. On the departure of the Flemish servant, Mr. Wilde immediately sent for the other English factors, to whom he related all the particulars relative to their unfortunate countrymen. After a short consultation, it was agreed that an information of the whole affair should be sent, by express, to Sir Walter Aston, an English ambassador to the King of Spain, then at Madrid. This was accordingly done, and the ambassador having presented a memorial to the King and Council of Spain, obtained an order for Mr. Lithgow's enlargement, and his delivery to the English factor. This order was directed to the governor of Malaga, and was received with great dislike and surprise by the whole assembly of the bloody Inquisition. Mr. Lithgow was released from his confinement on the eve of Easter Sunday, when he was carried from his dungeon on the back of the slave who had attended him, to the house of one Mr. Bosbich, where all proper comforts were given him. It fortunately happened that there was at this time a squadron of English ships in the road, commanded by Sir Richard Hawkins, who being informed of the past sufferings and present situation of Mr. Lithgow, came the next day ashore with a proper guard, and received him from the merchants. He was instantly carried in blankets on board the vanguard, and three days after was removed to another ship, by direction of the general, Sir Robert Mansell, who ordered that he should have proper care taken of him. The factor presented him with clothes and all necessary provisions, besides which they gave him two hundred reals in silver, and Sir Richard Hawkins sent him two double pistoles. Before his departure from the Spanish coast, Sir Richard Hawkins demanded the delivery of his papers, money, books, etc., but could not obtain any satisfactory answer on that head. We cannot help making a pause here to reflect how manifestly Providence interfered in behalf of this poor man when he was just on the brink of destruction, for by his sentence, from which there was no appeal, he would have been taken in a few days to Granada and burnt to ashes, 
and that a poor ordinary servant who had not the least knowledge of him nor was any ways interested in his preservation should risk the displeasure of his master and hazard his own life to disclose a thing of so momentous and perilous a nature to a strange gentleman on whose secrecy depended his own existence by such secondary means does providence frequently interfere in behalf of the virtuous and oppressed of which this is a most distinguished example after lying twelve days in the road the ship weighed anchor and in about two months arrived safe at deptford the next morning mr lithgow was carried on a feather bed to theobald's in herefordshire where at that time was the king and royal family his majesty happened to be that day engaged in hunting but on his return in the evening mr lithgow was presented to him and related the particulars of his sufferings and his happy delivery the king was so affected at the narrative that he expressed the deepest concern and gave orders that he should be sent to bath and his wants properly supplied from his royal munificence by these means under god after some time mr lithgow was restored from the most wretched spectacle to a great share of health and strength but he lost the use of his left arm and several of the smaller bones were so crushed and broken as to be ever after rendered useless notwithstanding that every effort was used mr lithgow could never obtain any part of his money or effects although his majesty and the ministers of state interested themselves on his behalf gondamore the spanish ambassador indeed promised that all his effects should be restored with the addition of one thousand pounds english money as some atonement for the tortures he had undergone which last was to be paid him by the governor of malaga these engagements however were but mere promises and although the king was a kind of guarantee for the well performance of them the cunning spaniard found means to elude the same he had indeed too great a share of influence in the english council during the time of that pacific reign when england suffered herself to be bullied into slavish compliance by most of the states and kings in europe the story of galileo the most eminent men of science and philosophy of the day did not escape the watchful eye of this cruel despotism galileo the chief astronomer and mathematician of his age was the first who used the telescope successfully in solving the movements of the heavenly bodies he discovered that the sun is the centre of motion around which the earth and various planets revolve for making this great discovery galileo was brought before the inquisition and for a while was in great danger of being put to death after a long and bitter review of galileo's writings in which many of his most important discoveries were condemned as errors the charge of the inquisitors went on to declare quote, that you galileo have upon account of these things which you have written and confessed subjected yourself to a strong suspicion of heresy in this holy office by believing and holding to be true a doctrine which is false and contrary to the sacred and divine scripture viz that the sun is the centre of the orb of the earth and does not move from the east to the west and that the earth moves and is not the centre of the world in order to save his life galileo admitted that he was wrong in thinking that the earth revolved around the sun and swore that quote, for the future i will never more say or assert either by word or writing anything that shall give occasion for a like suspicion end quote but immediately after taking this forced oath he is said to have whispered to a friend standing near the earth moves for all that summary of the inquisition of the multitudes who perished by the inquisition throughout the world 
no authentic record is now discoverable. But wherever popery had power, there was the tribunal. It had been planted even in the east, and the Portuguese Inquisition of Goa was, until within these few years, fed with many in agony. South America was partitioned into provinces of the Inquisition, and with a ghastly mimicry of the crimes of the mother state, the arrivals of viceroys and the other popular celebrations were thought imperfect without an auto-la-fe. The Netherlands were one scene of slaughter from the time of the decree which planted the Inquisition among them. In Spain the calculation is more attainable. Each of the seventeen tribunals, during a long period, burned annually, on an average, ten miserable beings. We are to recollect that this number was in a country where persecution had for ages abolished all religious differences, and where the difficulty was not to find the stake, but the offering. Yet, even in Spain, thus gleaned of all heresy, the Inquisition could still swell its lists of murders to thirty-two thousand. The numbers burned in effigy, or condemned to penance, punishments generally equivalent to exile, confiscation, and taint of blood, to all ruin but the mere loss of worthless life, amounted to three hundred and nine thousand. But the crowds who perished in dungeons of torture, of confinement, and of broken hearts, the millions of dependent lives made utterly helpless, or hurried to the grave by the death of the victims, are beyond all register, or recorded only before him who has sworn that, He that leadeth into captivity shall go into captivity, he that killeth with the sword must be killed with the sword. Such was the Inquisition, declared by the Spirit of God to be at once the offspring and image of the popedom. To feel the force of the parentage, we must look to the time. In the thirteenth century, the popedom was at the summit of mortal dominion. It was independent of all kingdoms. It ruled with a rank of influence never before or since possessed by a human scepter. It was the acknowledged sovereign of body and soul. To all earthly intents, its power was immeasurable for good or evil. It might have spread literature, peace, freedom, and Christianity to the ends of Europe or the world, but its nature was hostile. Its fuller triumph only disclosed its fuller evil, and, to the shame of human reason and the terror and suffering of human virtue, Rome, in the hour of its consummate grandeur, teemed with the monstrous and horrid birth of the Inquisition. End of chapter 5